You know, when I got a Fitbit, when, when I started wearing a Fitbit, it started to change my thinking. You, you know what I was thinking yesterday after I went on two walks and was on my feet most of the day? I was thinking, how many steps did I get? That's right. And then every once in a while, I'd wonder, where is my heartbeat? And I'd wonder, how many calories am I burning? And I know I'm not burning what they tell me I'm burning. But they tell me it's a really high number. But I know that can't be it. Uh, but I'm always paying attention to these, these numbers, to this data, because this is now tied to my body. This thing got pressed into my body, and now I think about it all the time. The only time I'm not thinking about my Fitbit is when I'm sleeping, because I don't wear it, so I'm not, like, I'm not thinking what my sleep pattern is. I just know it's not good, because we have a one-year-old who doesn't sleep. Like, I don't need a Fitbit to tell me that I don't sleep well, okay? But the Fitbit, this small thing, this thing has a way of shaping my thinking. And it's going to shape my thinking even when I walk off stage. You know what I'm curious about? When I walk off stage, I'm usually curious about where my heartbeat is. And sometimes it's high, sometimes it's low. I don't know what the pattern is. But I'm always thinking about it now that it's on my arm. And I thought that's a really good illustration for where we're going in the weeks to come with the letter to the Philippians. We saw last week that Paul puts the cross at the center of everything he wants to talk about. He wants these Philippians to have the cross pressed into their lives so they live cross-formed lives. And when the cross is pressed into your life, it has a way of shaping everything. It kind of has that Fitbit impact. Just like when you put a Fitbit on, it changes how you think about things, particularly walking. And so now I want to take that that, that example of a cross being pressed and it changing everything, and we want to now begin to actually walk through the letter. That, last week, we took some highlights from the middle of the letter to explore that big theme of a cross-formed life. This week, we actually step into the letter, and we just walk through that letter in the coming weeks, verse by verse, exploring what it looks like to actually live a cross-formed life. And so we're going to begin with the greeting. And it starts in a way that doesn't start, uh, we don't start our letters, but Paul gets right to the point as he does in most of his letters. So we're going to pick up Philippians 1, we're going to pick up verse 1 and 2. Here's what we read. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two verses, two verses, and the theme in those two verses is Jesus. Over and over again, Paul says Jesus. If I had to visualize it, I'd put this, I'd show you these two verses with bigger font for where Jesus shows up. So you can see, just by looking at the verse, in two verses, Jesus, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, that's a big part of the opening of the letter because Jesus defines who Paul is. Paul is a servant. That word there is actually slave. He's a slave of Jesus. So it defines who Paul is, and he says to the people who are also formed in Jesus, who also are receiving great things from Jesus. Jesus fills out everything about who Paul is and they are and what they're receiving. It's interesting then that he uses two titles, right? So Christ is not uh, a first or last name for Jesus. It's a title. It's the anointed one. And twice here Paul says this is Christ Jesus. 
Which that word Christ is going to be ringing in the ears of those who would have grown up on the Old Testament Testament Scriptures. Maybe non-Jews who went to synagogue because they were God-fearing Gentiles. Or really there would have been Jews in this church. And when they heard the title Christ, they know that's the anointed one. Christ literally means anointed one. And so this Jesus is the one that God had always promised to send. He is the king who brought his people out of exile and covered them in forgiveness. This is that anointed one. He is the anointed one of Israel now for the world. That's the Christ. It's that other term that really gets me because I would expect Christ. It's the other one that I feel like I know what he's doing. But when you dig a little further, it has so much more meaning. It's that term Lord. Now, I don't have any problem calling Jesus Lord. I kind of have grown up with that, Lord Jesus. But when he says it to these people, it rings with a depth, with a meaning that is revolutionary. I don't mean like revolutionary, like big deal. I mean like subversive revolutionary. It's a subversive title. Because he's using that title to the Philippians. In Philippi, the word Lord was not a neutral title. So I want to take us to the book of Acts where we read about the first time Paul shows up into Philippi. And Luke, the one writing this record of Paul showing up to Philippi, who happens to be on the journey, so he's going to use the first person plural, he'll use we, he's going to describe Philippi a particular way and it's going to have a a lot uh, to say for us to understand what Paul's doing when he writes Lord Jesus to the Philippians. Take a look at what Paul does. This is actually in Acts 16. So 16, 12, uh, Luke writes this about Paul coming into the city. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. You see how uh, Luke describes Philippi? He calls it a... Roman colony. That's very important. It's not just any old city. It's a Roman colony. And a Roman colony is really important because it is an outpost of Rome. One scholar describes the beginning of Philippi this way. Let's just read this description. In 42 BC, Augustus, this is Augustus Caesar, created the Roman colony of Philippi expressly for the purpose of making homes for his military veterans. He was also motivated by a desire to establish a military presence in this strategic area and to further the cultural and political Romanization of Macedonia. So what Augustus wants to do is set up a mini-Rome in different parts of the empire. And he's got a bunch of military veterans that he's got to do something with because as Augustus has gone out and conquered different lands, he's got a lot of experienced military folks that need to be resettled. If he brings them back to Rome, he's going to continue to overcrowd the city. And when you start overcrowding cities in the ancient world, you get starvation, you get famines, you get big problems. You often get riots and protests and looting, and ultimately, revolution happens. So we're not going to bring them back. There was no reason for him to bring them back to Rome. So what he does is he sets up a colony, a city, made up primarily of military veterans. So these are going to be men who not only have war experience, they have influence and power. And there are a lot of places in the Roman Empire that would have been thoroughly Roman. But in places like Philippi, a Roman colony, you would have seen Rome and all the Romanization clearly, clearer than any other city. 
And so when you walk into Philippi as a Roman colony, there are certain things that are going to pop. One of those is it's going to be very clear who the Lord of the world is. It's Caesar. Lord is a title Caesar would have picked up. It's a title he would have used. You know where you would have seen the title Lord? You would have seen it on a $10 bill. No, not really. Okay, you get it. But money, right? Money. So in the Roman world, you would have coins, particularly coins where they would have the image of the Caesar describing him as Lord. And that would be very clear. Who was in control of that city? Who's in control of the empire? And when you have a bunch of military to back that up, most people got in line. But here, Paul, even while in prison, is writing a letter to this group of Christians and right from the start puts that word. But he doesn't apply it to Caesar. He calls him Lord Jesus. You see, that's not a neutral term. When Paul writes that their identity and all the good things are coming from a different Lord, he's saying that we do not worship at the altar of Rome and we do not worship at the idol of Caesar. We have a different king. He's the king of the world. This is Lord Jesus. It's a really big deal. So here's how I visualize that. Here's how I visualize it. So if I had to visualize in physical form what's happening at the beginning of the letter, here's kind of how I think about it. I think about it as uh, Plato, like Plato. And so right here is a board with Plato smashed on it, laid flat. And this would represent your life, my life. It would represent the life of a city. And in Philippi, there was a particular thing that was pressed into the life of that city. It was Lord Caesar. And so most people come around and their lives are shaped by Lord Caesar. And that has all kinds of implications. But when Jesus died on a Roman cross and then came back to life, and that news started to spread into the world, it was a challenge to the authority of every, uh, every ruler or king of this world who claims to have preeminence. No, it is not Caesar. It is King Jesus who is Lord. And so Paul challenges the fact that this, that Caesar would be imprinted. For those that can't see this, I just want to be aware, I've taken a $10 bill and pressed it onto the Play-Doh. That's what I've just done. But Paul has a different message. He says that there is a different king, a different Lord, and his sign is a cross. And so Paul says, no, your life, you early Christians, you believers, you followers of this different king, your life isn't stamped with the image of Caesar. Your life is stamped with the image of the cross. The cross has been pressed into your life. That means you have a different king. There's a different Lord. And so what happens for the rest of the letter is Paul wants to explore, what does it mean then for these early Christians, for this group of believers to live a cross-formed life? A life where the cross, not Caesar, is pressed into the center of their everyday real life. That's what we're going to explore. So from the get-go, from the beginning, that word Lord sets the stage for this image, that a cross has been pressed into this community, and now he wants to explore, what does that mean? Like, literally, what does it mean? Let's take it from a general concept and get it down on the ground. Let's get it into people's homes. Let's get it into the workplace. What does this mean? That's where we go next. So now with the greeting and the opening of the letter done, I just want you to see that I did not put the $10 bill back in my pocket. All right, Austin, you can't take that. 
you can't take, don't take that at communion. All right. Okay. And John's over there eyeing it too. I see it. All right. So what are we, what are we going to, where is he going to go next? That's what we do now is for the rest of the letter, for the next several weeks, we take that image and we press it into real life. What does a cross-form life look like? Here's what he does. He picks up in verse 3. Paul writes this, I thank my God every time I remember you. And all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how, long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. So the first thing he says after stamping this letter with the cross is he talks about his affections. He talks about his partnership. He talks about sharing with them. These are the two phrases. Two phrases in the, that section. Two phrases that need to stand out for us. Partnership in the gospel and sharing in God's grace. Both things stand out. He's sharing with them in God's grace, and he's in partnership. So that means that when the cross is stamped on a person's life, they gain a new family. They they get different kinds of people now in their family tree. That's what happens when you stamp the cross. When you say, Lord Jesus, when the cross becomes the sign at the center of your life... Well, that means you now gather up with a different group of people. And now that means you are in partnership and sharing in God's grace. See, when you have a different Lord, relationships begin to change. Partnership, sharing in God's grace. Now you know as well as I do, when you put a bunch of different, a group of different people together, it doesn't always look good right? Like, just look at Thanksgiving. Like, it, when you go do your Thanksgiving, I am sure you have at least one person, just one, that you're not a big fan of. Now, can you imagine then when you come into a group, a, a group of people with different skin color and language and temperaments? Well, you're going to get, you're going to get a lot of differences playing out. And in the early church, is the same thing that happened. You had people coming together, they had stamped their lives with the cross, and yet they come together, and then it doesn't take long until they start to divide. That's going to be a challenge with the Philippian church. We're going to see it as we walk through the letter. But here he wants to elevate their unity and partnership. But there is this one letter I want to at least acknowledge. When Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, what we call 1 Corinthians, right from the start, in the introduction of the letter, he calls them out for their divisions. I just want us to note that... Problems we might have today are problems that early Christians had back then. Take a look. This is what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 12. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, from Chloe's household, uh, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another I follow Apollos, another I follow Cephas, another I follow Christ. There in Corinth, that's a city about 450 miles away from Philippi, there in another thoroughly Greek and Romanized city, you had divisions in the church. This was a problem in all the churches. 
It's still a problem for us. We don't always get along. And yet, Paul calls them to a unity because their life is stamped with the cross. When you have a different Lord, you come under His Lordship. That means there's unity. We're sharing in grace. There's partnership. This is the language Paul's using here. You know, there's one moment where Paul writes in another letter. It's another letter he wrote from prison. It's that letter to the Colossians. Another church that had some division. And there's this moment where he describes the unity we have under the Lordship of the cross, a cross-form life. Here's what he says. I love these verses. Colossians 3, 9 through 11, he says this. You have taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here, here, in a different kind of life, a new imaged life. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. When you get the cross, those barriers put up between tribes and people groups, between skin color and language, between ethnicity and race, all of that falls. Those barriers dissolve when you come under the cross. Now, that doesn't mean the differences go away, but it means you can come together as one person under this lordship. When you do not have this lordship, you get a lot of division. You get people dividing on skin color and language and ethnicity and class. All of that happens when you take the cross away from the center of life. And Paul is giving a vision for what it looks like to be together. And for a group of people that always claimed that they were God's people because of Torah and temple and circumcision, it was a really big deal when people started showing up in the churches and they weren't circumcised and they didn't care much for Torah and they didn't care to go to the temple. And Paul says, but we are one under this lordship, under King Jesus, under a life that has been formed by the cross. So all that's happening in these verses in Philippians. What's interesting, what I love, is that we know a few details of what's actually going on in the church because of the account in Acts. So in Acts, we know of at least two people, two people that come to know Jesus, two people who have stamped the cross on their life and on the life of their household. Here's those two people. I just want to Put them in a short list. It is Lydia, who is a cloth, a cloth dealer, a woman business leader, but a woman who probably struggled in Philippi because she was not a male, but still had, was doing well enough to at least have enough business to sustain herself and her family. We don't know if she was married or she was widowed or singled, but we do know she's a woman, and women were not always well off in the ancient world. But this woman comes to know Jesus. And then... Just a few verses later, after we read about her conversion, we read that Paul and a partner of his named Silas go to prison. And in the middle of the night, well, they, they're singing songs, and an angel releases them. And the jailer, the jailer in that Roman prison, well, he knows he's in trouble because prisoners have escaped. But Paul and Silas, they don't bring revenge, they bring the gospel. And that Roman jailer and his household come to know Jesus. They are baptized in the name of Jesus, of Lord Jesus. And so he stamps on his life the cross. And then those two people, I imagine they didn't like each other. I imagine Lydia knew people in her community that that Roman jailer had abused at some point along the line. We live in a small town. Do you hear news of something in our town and then you, one degree removed, you know the person involved? 
you know any police officers in our town? I don't know that I knew one police officer in the Raleigh area. I know a lot of them now, and I know the whole fire department. <laughs> in a small town, people know each other. In Philippi, a town of about 10,000 people, I think we could be pretty sure that the Roman jailer and Lydia at some point had crossed paths. And here, because of the cross, they came together under the banner of Jesus, and they sat together in the Philippian, uh, Philippian church. Can you, can you imagine? So when Paul is writing about partnership and sharing together, he's got all of that in mind. All of these experiences he carries with him, and they drive into his pen as he writes the letter. Now, you know it's pretty difficult to make all that work. How do you make that work? Well, you get the cross, but what does the cross give you? Well, the cross is going to drive love into a group of people that are different. That's what's going to happen. Because the cross is a symbol of God's love. And then when you get the cross, you're going to get love. That means you're going to get forgiveness and you're going to get patience. You're going to get forbearance. All of that you get when you get the cross. And so if I was looking at a community of different people and I wanted them to get along, the number one thing I'd be wanting them to do after getting the cross stamped onto their lives is to have love fueling the way they interact. I'd want love. I just want love. I want, I want love to just keep growing. That's what I'd want. That's what I want for us. That's what I want for any church. Just keep love growing. Isn't it interesting? But that's exactly what Paul prays for. That's exactly what he prays for. So right after declaring that it is Lord Jesus... And that now, because of Lord Jesus, we have partnership and we're sharing together and this diverse community has come together under, under His kingship that the next thing He does is pray that love would grow. Let's look at that. These are a lot of the last verses this morning. As we close this section of the letter, Paul writes this. After everything he's just said, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's what Paul wants for this church, that they grow in love, that they're going to discern what's the things we should, we should bicker a little bit about to get us further down the road in the service of Jesus. What are the things that are best and pure and may the fruit of all of that grow so that love abounds. That means you're going to forgive people. It means the people you don't like, you'll be a little more patient with. The people that annoy you or chew their gum really loud, you'll just be able to handle that a little bit better. Because in this community, there's love. Now, there's no gum in the early church, and I'm not looking at anyone chewing gum right now. It literally just came to my mind. I can see some of you have gum and you're thinking, really, he can hear it on stage? No, I'm just an example. All right, someone's going to catch me about that. So there we go. So let's make some application. So let's take Scripture and get it into our life. Here, there's some questions I'm asking. And this is going to be a question we're going to be asking week in and week out during this series. We have to ask it. This question is, what am I pressing into the center of my life right now? You see, if I'm not pressing the cross into the center of my life, there is, there is another Lord that will be pressed there. Something else will, go, will be pressed into my life. Some people press their career. Some people press their own happiness. Some pr people press their finances. 
Some people press their political preferences. Some press their sports teams. It doesn't matter. Just something else will get pressed here. Something else will be Lord Caesar if it's not Jesus, King and Lord. Something else is going to get pressed here. So there are some things that Paul talked about at one point where he described those things in our life that can cause a lot of trouble. And when that happens, when those things that cause trouble, they're pressed into our life, well, relationships go wrong. So we're always evaluating what's pressed into the center of my life, what's, what's there, and then we, in this passage, to make some application, we take a look at those relationships that we have. So let's ask it this way. I want to ask it this way. So kind of move to that second layer of application. That is this, what do my relationships look like in my church family, and what do my relationships look like in general? Now, I know that some of you have, like, churches somewhere else, and, like, you, you, like, when you're at the beach, like, you stay at those, like, you're there for a long time, and you're at those churches for a long time. I just want you to take any gathering of Christians that you're a part of. You, you, this is what you need to, I want you to put this question into that context. What do your relationships look like in the church? Are you complaining more than anything else? Do your conversations look more like gossip than encouragement? Are you upset about things going on in the world more than you're excited about Jesus? Now, I don't want to make that a zero-sum game there. We can be upset at things in the world. But what are we talking about most? What's the, what's the, what's the tone of the conversations? And are you divided with people more than you're united? I mean, you know this. I don't know all of your relationships. But these are good questions to ask. And what about in general? Are you primarily upset with people? I mean, are you fundamentally at odds with most people? In a world where we are constantly bombarded with negative news and a lot of division, it can be easy to pick that up and press that into the center of our lives. So we need to be really cautious of these things. So Paul, before he ever wrote that thing that talked about everyone's one in Christ, and he has all these major divisions, and he said, but in Christ we're one. Before he said that, he knew that to even get to a point where you're one in Christ, you probably have to let go, kill, put off certain things. Those things that are sitting at the center of our lives that aren't the cross, you're going to need to take those off because you can't get to verse 11 in Colossians 3 before you do verses 5 through 8 where you take off some things. Those are the things that we might be pressing here. This is the reason, by the way, these, these few verses, I didn't want to mention any of these examples because these, ones, these are tough. I'm going to let Paul say them. So if you've got anyone to take beef with, you take it with an inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired apostle. Not me. All right, here we go. This one, these hurt. Colossians 3, 5 through 8, Paul says this, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Those are all things that we could put at the center of our lives. And if you want to get unity, if your love's going to abound, like in your relationships, like the people you know and love and, and, and that are part of your church family, if you want any of that, you've got to start taking off these and getting rid of them. It's going to have to happen. So another way you could say that is, as you're taking that off, you're putting on... A focus on Jesus. That is that your eyes align with Jesus above everything else. And what we're saying is that it's a cross-form life. It's the cross pressed in the center of our lives. 
But later in that letter, this letter of the Philippians, Paul describes what it's like for him to put Jesus at the center. I'm, doing, I'm, I'm like making some motion because of the, the words he uses in this verse. He talks about pointing his vision ahead. Philippians 3, 13 through 14. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That's what a cross-formed life looks like. That's what it looks like to get along and to be united when you don't like everyone and they're different than you. That's what it looks like to be in partnership and to share in God's grace. Is that you forget what is behind and strain for what is ahead and you put the cross right at the center. That's what this looks like. So let's, let's like get a next step on the ground, like something you can do and I could do this week. It's going to be this. It's just a prayer. It's a prayer. Pray each day that your church family may abound in love. This is any group of Christians that you're around. You pray their love may abound. Okay? Don't complicate that prayer. Just pray. Oh God, may this group of Christians, may their love abound more and more. And what's going to happen is God's going to do some work in your heart. This is the same God who will carry to completion what he's already started inside of you. It means that that person that you don't like, you may actually forgive them. The person that has annoyed you for years, you may actually have greater patience. The conflict that you know that exists between, between these two people or this group and to this group, you're going to start seeing reconciliation happening. Because when you pray this prayer... The Holy Spirit has a way of moving so that people move closer to the way of Jesus than they do to selfishness and pride. So pray that prayer each day as you're thinking about it. Just, I pray that East 10th will grow in love. And as you drive by First Baptist on Becker, just pray. I pray that church will grow and abound in love more and more. As you drive by Victory and Calvary and First Christian and New Testament and Rosemary, the Rosemary's, right? The, the Methodist and the Baptist. As you drive by all these churches, and we got one right over here across the street, uh, Ministry of Many Colors. I, I think that literally is the name. If it's not, it's somewhere like that. Uh, but the point is, any, all these churches you drive by, just pray. Oh God, may their love abound more and more. God's going to do some work. See, we are in this, in partnership, sharing in grace but only under the lordship of Jesus. That's how all this works. All right, let me pray for us. Father, as we close out our interaction with your word, just want to pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ that we may be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And together we say, Amen.